Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 90. Sorry. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by the evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Holy, infinite, eternal God, send your spirit that our hearts would be inflamed with your word. Speak to us and through us and through your holy word that we might glorify and honor you this morning throughout this day. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Hope you all have had a great week of Thanksgiving with family and friends. Um, Karen and I spent most of our time here with our son who flew in, um, which was great to have him with us for a few days as Karen continues to recover from her surgery. You know, as we dive into this psalm today, uh, this is the last psalm in this fall series on the book of Psalms. And I hope that this fall you have grown in your understanding and your appreciation both of the character of God as laid out in the Psalms, and have grown in a deeper understanding of yourself, of ourselves, as what it means to be human and what it means to follow God, um, according to the Psalms. And I hope that you will take the Psalms and that they will become uh, an everyday part of your uh, time in the Word. They're a great reminder to go to them because they do truly speak and touch on every aspect of what it means to be human what it means for us to follow God in the good days and the bad days. As I was preparing for this psalm, um, a couple things came to mind as as we read the psalm. Of course, there's a lot going on here. But as I was thinking through it, and particularly about the eternality of God, that God is eternal, I began to think back over these last two weeks or these last two months 
that's been a rather interesting and somewhat difficult time for Karen and I. You know, it's been almost two months since I had a heart attack, and it's been almost two weeks since Karen had surgery. In both cases, we had some difficult days in the hospital. First, with me going to the ER and having an allergic reaction to a medication that then showed up as having a heart attack as well. That was exciting and fun. Um, that then led to getting a heart cath. Um, thankfully, I'm here, and I can praise God for that discovery and finding that out versus being out hiking somewhere and having a heart attack and not in a very good place. Both events caused me to think more critically about my age and my health. My life, humanly speaking, isn't getting any longer, but rather shorter. And honestly, that could be said of each of us here in this room. As we grow older, the brevity and the frailty of life becomes increasingly obvious to us. We feel it in our bones, or at least I do at my age. I feel it in my bones every day. And we see it in ourselves, and of course, we see it in others around us. Now, I understand that some of you aren't 54. Many of you are a lot younger than that. And so maybe you're thinking, well, I don't really see where you're going with this. But in reality, we are all frail creatures who have a very small life, 70, 80, maybe 90 years. And if you look around, if you're not feeling this in your bones, you're not feeling the brevity and the frailty of life in your bones, then look around and look at your parents or look at your grandparents. And I can promise you, you can talk to them and they can, they can give you hope of where you're going in the years ahead. Um, this psalm reminds us continually that life is short and that we are frail people in need of our mighty eternal God. Now, Psalm 90 comes to us to remind us of our frailty, as I said, but also to point us to hope, to show us hope that we can find in our God. Now, Moses wrote this psalm, and he's contrasting, really, the shortness of life with the eternality of God, with, that God is eternal and, law, and without end or beginning. He, and he did not write the psalm to discourage us. It's easy sometimes to get caught up in the middle of the psalm and come away feeling discouraged, the weight and the burden of our sin. But as we look at this psalm, I want to see, I'm going to point us to the hope that's here as well. The context of, the context of this psalm was, was written before the Davidic kingdom came into being, before the temple was built, and before the nation of Israel even came into existence. Historically, this psalm takes place when the people of God were wandering in the wilderness. We've read it in the scriptures. We've sung about it. Uh, you remember this story if you go into Numbers 12, 13, and 14. And um, in that story, Moses had led the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. They'd gone to Mount Sinai. They'd received the Ten Commandments. They're going to the promised land, to the land flowing with milk and honey. And on their way, they get there. They, get, they arrive to the land. And Moses says, okay, we're going to stop. We're going to survey the land. I'm going to send out 12 spies. I want you to go out and bring back a report. They go out and they survey the land. And they come back. And all but two of the 12 spies say that it, this land is, is definitely a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at this beautiful fruit. But 10 of the spies say, we can't attack this land. We can't conquer our enemies. There's no way the cities, are, the walls of the cities are too high and too strong. The people are like giants. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We might today say we're like ants in their eyes. And their report back to Moses and to the people lead the people to again begin to grumble against Moses' leadership and even begin to say, I wish you would not have brought us out of Egypt. 
we would prefer slavery than to have to go into this land. And of course, the people had forgotten what God had already done for them. In the moment's notice, when things seemed hard, when things seemed difficult, things seemed out of their control, they quickly forgot that the God of heaven and earth, the eternal, infinite God who had brought them out of Egypt, who had defeated the armies of Pharaoh, that they had forgotten all of that. They'd put it behind them. They didn't look at his promises. They didn't look at what was out before them and trust in the God of heaven. Instead, they complained and they wished that they were back where they were before, even under the yoke of slavery. And of course, you can imagine Moses' response. He was angry and he was upset with the people. And God brings, dis brings um, his wrath, his displeasure on his covenant people because of their lack of faithfulness. And over the next 40 years, these people are, are told that they will not enter into the promised land, into the land that they were longing for. They would not enter into it. Instead, they would be led to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until that entire generation passed away. That included even Moses. Moses would never lay his head in the promised land. The only two out of that generation were Caleb and Joshua, who were the two spies who saw the same thing as the ten, but also understood that the God that they served was, was more than capable of conquering and overcoming their enemies. Now, today we're going to look at a number of truths. I want you to keep that in, in the back of your mind. That's what for 40 years they've been wandering, and now Moses has brought them up to the promised land again. And he's going to die before he enters. But he's got him to the promised land. And that's when this psalm is written. He's reminding them of who God is and who they are. And reminding them, even as they get ready to cross over the Jordan, to come back into that land, to conquer it, that they are people who, though made in the image of God, are short of life, are moral failures, fall short of his glory, that whole list that we'd read. He's reminding them, and then he's going to point him to hope. Point them to hope that, yes, this is who you are, but know who I am. I'm the internal, infinite, unchangeable God. And if you will rest in me and you will hold to me, then I will deliver you the land that I've promised you. So I want to look at some of these promises that come out in this text that remind us both of our frailty and the brevity of life, but also point us to our mighty God. When we look at verses 2 through 6, I'm going to skip one, and we're going to come back to it, I promise. But we're going to look at 2 through 6 first. And the first thing that we see in this, these first five verses is that God is eternal. We see this in verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then in verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And then in verse 3, to remind us who we are, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. We are not like God. God is eternal. We are not. Moses contrasts God and people to remind us of our momentary nature. God is eternal. People are mortal. God has always existed and will always exist. While human life is a mere blink of an eye, it's just a, 
a just a passing a passing a night in the dark right we're here only for a short time and yet god is here forever and ever and ever you and i have a beginning and an end but god does not he has always existed which is just even difficult to grasp i don't know about you but when we talk about the cosmos and we and astronomers and cosmologists talk about you know this star is 34 um, light years away or it's 300 billion miles or just these huge figures that mean absolutely nothing to me and to most of us because none of us can really fathom how big that is, how far that is. And it's the same with God. We can't really fathom the fact that God doesn't have a beginning or an end. The fact that God is eternal, though, means that he is not limited by time or space. He's not confined to this physical universe, and he's not subject to the same limitations that you and me are confined to. You know, there's a, in our shorter catechism, and the, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, uh, which is part of our tradition, the Presbyterian Church in America, there's a question. And this is, if you don't know your shorter catechism, if you've never looked at it, I would encourage you to spend some time learning the shorter catechism. It's such a great tool to train yourself, to train your children. Uh, we used it with our son from the time he was one on. I know it was called a children's catechism then. But... Um, just to help us train him up in who God is, uh, the basics and the tenets of our faith. But there's a question, I think it's question six in the Shorter Catechism that says, what is God? That's an interesting question. It's a little weird. We don't go around saying, what is God today? But the question is, what is God? And the Catechism answers, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, what the Catechism is trying to teach us, it's taking, of course, from Scripture these truths, and it's trying to teach us that God is not like us. He's very different than us. And traditionally in theology, God has both what is called communicable and non-communicable attributes. You know, really, this is just a fancy way of saying that God shares characteristics with us, characteristics of his nature with us, right? Those are communicable attributes while also having some characteristics of his nature that he does not share with us, non-communicable attributes. The communicable attributes of God are those things that are shared at least on some level by us. And you can think of those things, right? God is love. Well, we know how to love and we experience love. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is kind. Those are all attributes, our nature, that make up who we are, but also make up God, of course, in a much greater, much more infinite way, about him than us. Some of the non-communicable attributes of God that we come out in this text are that God is eternal, is without beginning or end, that God's unchangeable, all right? We call that the immutability of God. That means he never changes. Other things where we talk about is that God is infinite, right? That he's without beginning or end, that, he, that nothing can contain him. All those things are truths about God that come out here and throughout Scripture to help us understand that we are, yes, similar to God, and yet we are not. He is vastly different than us. And one of those differences, or two of those differences, is that he's internal and that he's unchangeable. Look, Moses points out here to show us our small, his point here is to show us our smallness and to remind us that we're not God. And because God is eternal, we can also know that he's unchangeable. That is, he doesn't change like you and me. From eternity to eternity, God is God. 
When we talk about the unchanging character of God, this means that he's not subject to change or decay. Right? He's always faithful and reliable. When we talk about God's character, because he's unchanging, he's always loving. He's always kind. He's always good. He's always just. That's what it means for him to be unchanging, to be immutable. I know, again, this can be hard to grasp for us. We live in a world that's constantly changing. And on top of that, we're constantly changing. The way we look at things changes over time. The way we think usually changes over time. We increase in knowledge. We grow in our skills over time. My emotions are up and down. One day I'm happy, a moment later I'm sad. I respond to the same question with gentleness, while the next day I respond with anger and frustration. We do this because we're not like God in our passions, in our nature. God knows all things. He doesn't need to learn something. And he certainly doesn't grow in his ability to do something. The fact that God is unchanging throughout time is good news for you and me. And hopefully you recognize that. We don't have to worry about God changing for the better or for the worse. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the writer of Hebrews. When we read that God is his love, that he is always love, and that he is always kind, that he is always good, those are again a reminder to us that we can have hope that God loves us today, that he will love us tomorrow, and that he'll love us 30 years from now, because that's who he is. Even though we sin, even though we fall short, his promise as his children is that he will love us, that he will care for us, that his promises are true and always true for us. And that's based on his character because he does not change. He is not fickle like you and me. But maybe some of you are wondering, wouldn't it be better or wouldn't it be good if God could change for the better? That's an interesting question and one that I think misunderstands the character and nature of God. If God could change, it would mean that he was not perfect. But God, as we're told in Scripture, is perfect in all his attributes. He is just as perfect today as he was at the time of Jesus, or as he was at the time of Moses. It should be comforting to us to know that God does not change. His unchanging nature can provide us with a sense of stability and security in a world that often feels chaotic and unpredictable. If God is unchanging, then it means that his love and compassion for you and me never changes either. I don't know if that should encourage us. That should remind us of his character. Not only is he eternal, he is unchanging, and his character towards you and me will not change as his children. Moses began this section with the eternity of God and his unchanging character to encourage us. And the and Duncan says it like this, if your hope is in something that dies with you, you have no lasting hope. But the good news is this, because we hope in God who outlives us, we have a hope that will outlive us as well. We are short, but God is long. He is eternal. Therefore, our hope can last. And then beginning with verse 7, Moses turns from talking about God being eternal to the frailty, to moving to the frailty of, of human life, to the frailty of humanity. The first thing that jumps out to me and hopefully to us is that in, these fir- in verses 7 through 11 is this description 
of mankind or humankind. Look how, look how we're described. He says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Think about it. All our secret sins, God knows. Your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your friend might know, but God knows all our sins, every one of them. And yet, because we're his children, his love does not change for you and me. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. I don't think these, these words are not easy words for us to hear and to think upon because we tend as Americans to be optimistic in our approach to life. At least I know that I am. We tend to see not to see or feel the depth of our sin. And death for us is almost always visibly removed from our daily lives. We, if you live in other cultures, death is displayed prominently in many other cultures. But in the U.S., most of us have never seen a person die. Most of us have never been with a person when they died. And yet, we are frail creatures who not live long, who will eventually die. Moses wants us to understand that life is not just brief, but also frail. And it's brief and frail here because of sin. That is, death is present because of sin. And death comes from God's righteous judgment of sin. For the wages of sin is death, says Paul to us in, in the book of Romans. Look, any sin we're hanging on to is serious. It's serious business. It's robbing us of the life that God has given us. It's robbing us of the life that God has given us to live and to move and have being. Sin steals our hopes. It steals our plans. It steals our peace with the God of the universe who has designed us to know him. So church, don't treat your sin lightly because ultimately sin leads to death. Sin leads to hopelessness. Sin leads to despair. Brothers and sisters, verses 7 through 11 are best understood in light of verse 12. Because verse 12 calls for us to learn to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That is, we are being called to know, our, know ourselves in light of who God is. right? To know ourselves in light of who God is. And that's so important in this text. If you stop at verse 11 and don't make it to 12, then you might get stuck in thinking, oh, I'm a miserable creature. I'm just sinful. I'm weighed down by it. But it doesn't end there. He's showing us, look, know who you are so that you might live a life according to the wisdom and pleasure of God. You know, we could spend an entire sermon here on verse 12, but let me suggest just two things that we need in order to number our days rightly or correctly. First, I believe Moses wants us to see our limitations as men and women. You know, the big contrast in this psalm is that God is God and we are not. We have limited strength, limited time, and we are dependent where God is independent. Our limitations are not there to even to crush us or even to make us feel guilty. But they are a reminder that we are creatures made in the image of God, and we are not God. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, but we are not. And true wisdom understands that distinction. Understanding our finiteness will change the way we live. For example, recognizing that we are limited can instill a sense of urgency and appreciation for the present moment. 
It can help us to savor the simple joys of life, to cherish our relationships, and to make the most of the opportunities that God gives us. Our limitations means that, look, we can't work 60 and 70 hours and flourish and thrive in this world because we weren't built that way. Our limitations means that we're given six days to work and one day to rest. And that's part of the Decalogue. That's part of the creation story because it is what, ta- what we need in order to thrive because we're not God. We're not made to work constantly. We're not made to work 70 and 80 hours a week, week after week after week, and then, str- then expect us to thrive and to be happy, uh, to be here in worship, all those things. We're not made that way. God has made us with limitations, and we need to recognize those limitations. Look, not only that, but the realization of our finitude can foster a sense of connection with other people, can help foster that sense of connection. It helps us recognize that we share mortality and many of the same vulnerabilities vulnerabilities and and aspirations, which can lead us to greater compassion, empathy, and understanding with our neighbors, right? Our neighbors are just like you and me. They're not different than us. They're not God. They, have, they are limited as well. They have limited time. They have limited compassion. They have limited mercy. And so when you interact with your neighbor, if you will remember, be mindful of your limitedness, when someone responds negatively or harshly, you can look at that, not necessarily be angry, but take that for what it is that Maybe that person was having a bad day. I haven't been walking in their shoes. I don't know what's going on with them right now. I don't have to sit in judgment of them. I can go to God with my anger or my frustration. Maybe I need to even go to that person. But knowing our limitations can help us have empathy and compassion for our neighbors. Secondly, I I think Moses wants us, us to grasp that our death, that our mortality, our frailty as human beings is intricately tied to our sin. Nobody wants to think about this, but scripture is quite clear on this subject. All our misery and death in life is because of sin. And because of sin, we deserve God's just wrath, his just judgment. Notice Moses' observations are made here without bitterness, without resentment, It's rather just simple acceptance of this is the fact of who we are and who God is. We are destined to die, and as hard as we try to ignore or prolong our life, we still will die. Nothing will prevent that fact apart from the second coming of Christ. We live under the judgment of God unless we find grace and mercy. Look, the truth is that apart from the grace of God revealed in Jesus, we live and die under the holy wrath of God. One writer has said that, has written this, although life is short and the wrath of God terrifying, the mercy and protection of God for his people are great. Yes, we are frail, mortal, sinful people who need to learn to live within our limitations, but we are not without hope in a broken and fallen world. The mercy, protection, and hope of God is seen in this text. It's seen in verse one and verse 17. God has always been the home of his people, as we're told in verse 1. And this is where our hope lies. It's interesting to me that this psalm would start with these words. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. 
and end with, may the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Moses began this psalm by focusing on God as our great comforter. Before tell, talking about God's nature or even our mortality, he talks first and foremost about who God is to us, that he is our great comfort. He is our home. And I think the reason for this is that he, Moses knew what it was like to live life as a nomad. Remember, for 40 years, they'd been wandering in the wilderness, day to day, changing location, moving, constantly moving, with all kinds of issues that they were facing, from battles with kings to, to scorpions to serpents to people rebelling, all these different issues. For 40 years, he never laid his head in the same place. They were wandering in the wilderness. Moses knew what it was like to not have a physical home. His entire ministry and a good portion of his life had been lived as a sojourner. And remember, he only saw the promised land from a distance. He never entered in. That generation that died out included Moses. So he could look out from the top of a mountain. He looks out and he sees the promised land. And he's getting the people ready to enter into that land. But he never gets to go and experience the land which becomes a dwelling place for God's people. Moses lived his entire life without a home and without the comforts and, and possessions that you and I would take for granted, which is why I think he describes God as our dwelling place, a refuge. He doesn't say God provided a dwelling place, but that God is our refuge, that God is our home. You know, I grew up in a family that moved all the time. By the time I was 17 years old, I'd moved something like 25 to 30 times in my life. I never thought much of it, honestly, except between 6th and 7th grade when I know that that was a hard year for me to, to move cities. Prior to living in New York City, I had never lived in the same home for longer than three years. And I know what it feels like to be a sojourner in a land without a home. For most of my Christian life, I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, that God is my dwelling place, that God is my home, which is not tied to a location, or to my possessions. God is always with us, and he is always ready to offer us his love and support. When we make God our dwelling place, we are choosing to live in his presence and to trust his promises. He's our true refuge, not our earthly possessions, not our physical home, our physical location. Our hope and security are found in him alone. You know, I could imagine the Lord Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head, praying this psalm for himself. You are my father. You are my dwelling place through all generations. Right? Luke tells us Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus understood what it was to be a sojourner, even in the land of Israel. And we too can pray this, this same psalm. For our home is with the Father and the Son who came by the Spirit to make their home with us. John tells us that in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Later in the New Testament, 1 Peter in chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We are not citizens, this is what Peter's saying, we are not citizens of this world, but rather pilgrims on a journey towards our true home in heaven, our true home where God is. And if you want to experience the favor of the Lord our God, 
then trust in him and find him alone as your dwelling place. Know that Christ has purchased us with his blood. Jesus is the only way the favor of God can rest on us. And if you have not received his favor, let me encourage you to now bow your hearts and acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your rebellion, that you may finally receive mercy through Christ today because Christ has died for you. Come, I encourage you, come and put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him that you may truly know the favor and the mercy of our eternal, infinite, unchangeable God. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would cause it by your spirit to dwell in us richly, that you would remind us continually that we are not eternal, that we are limited creatures made in your image, but limited. Help us to live life in accordance to who you say we are, that we would find mercy and grace in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.